that was my plan initially, and uh, I changed my plan because uh, I needed to finish up that section in Matthew uh, succeeding Peter's uh, confession of the identity of Jesus Christ. So if you'll open your copy of the scripture to Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13, we will, or 18 rather, we will pick up where we left off. Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 18. I trust you've all found that portion of Scripture. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. The subject for this morning, as you probably ought to know, is Jesus builds his church. Of all the organizations and entities on earth, there is only one that will last forever, and that is the church. Other enterprises are the product of mere human beings. The church is the product of the eternal Son of God. Jesus promised to build his church, and even as I speak, he is fulfilling that promise all over the world. There are people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ all over this planet. It's Jesus is building his church. In the passage before us, we have the first announcement of the divine building project. And I'm going to entitle it, or give a heading, The Promise to Build the Church. I just read verse 18, uh, and I read in verse, the A portion of that verse, I also will read it again. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus' pledge to build his church came in response to Peter's confession of the identity of Jesus that we saw in the previous verse. Peter's confession and Jesus' words here, you are Peter, and upon the rock, this rock, I will build my church, have been misinterpreted by the Roman Catholic Church. They believe it means that Jesus would build his church upon Peter. They claim that the first pope and head of the church was Peter. They assert that rock identifies Peter as the one upon whom Jesus is built. The pope according to Roman Catholic theology, is considered to be the supreme and authoritative representative of Christ on earth. Sometimes they call him the vicar of Christ. When a pope speaks ex cathedra, that is Latin from the chair, that is, in his official capacity as head of the church, by their claim, he is said to speak with a divine authority equal to that of God in Scripture. Let that sink in for a while. 
do you believe, I know you don't, this is a rhetorical, do you believe that Francis over at the Vatican is speaking with the authority of God equal to the scripture? If you do, let's talk after church. <laughs> well, that, that's their claim. Such a claim is heretical. It is a religious lie. Equally heretical is a papal bull. A bull is a decree issued by the Pope. It was issued by Pope Boniface, this particular papal bull, on November 18th, 1302. It states in part, listen to this, consequently we declare, state, define, and pronounce that it is altogether necessary to salvation for every creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. End of quote. I object, Your Honor. <laughs> salvation in no way is part of us being subject to a mere human being who is a fallible human being who has no ability to save anyone at all. Is the Catholic teaching about Peter being the first pope and all that is related to his claim scriptural? No. No, not at all. But I need to add something here because some of you perhaps were wondering, well, why would you take to talking about the RCC? Why would you talk about the Roman Catholic Church uh, here? They have their religion. Let's just leave them alone. Somebody might think that. I would hope you don't. But you say, well, why would you talk about it? You, uh, just tell us all this in the text. I will, but let me tell you this, why I have to address this. Titus 1.9 says to pastors, exhort in sound doctrine. Refute those who contradict. It's part of a pastor's responsibility under God, under Christ, to before his um, congregation, he must teach sound or healthy doctrine to his congregation and anytime there's anything that contradicts sound doctrine said pastor must refute it and that's my job I am accountable to Jesus Christ for doing this if I let you go along and I explain to you the distinctions between true faith and false faith and I let you be fooled by that then I'll have to answer to him for that and I intend to let you know because I want to see you grow and know the truth about spiritual matters. Amen? Well let's begin with the fact that the Pope, get this, I think you know is not the head of the church. Ephesians 5.23 tells us without um, ambiguity that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is the head of the body. Second, there is no such office as Pope found in Scripture. You look in vain from Matthew to Revelation to find an office that's called the papacy. You will not find anything that says anything about a Pope. It is a man-made position without divine authorization or authority. Third, Peter certainly did not understand nor claim that Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 18, verse A, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Peter did interpret those words to refer to him as a, the Pope. He didn't understand it like that. And I know Peter, he wasn't thick-headed. 
He would have known if Jesus said, Peter, I'm establishing you as the first pope. Peter would have known that. And he sure enough, sure enough would have told us. First Peter 1. Let's take a quick excursion to see how Peter saw himself. First Peter 1. Chapter 1. Verse 1. Peter's first epistle. And notice what he writes. Pay attention to the word of God. Look closely. Look what it says. First Peter 1 Peter 1.1, it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He identifies himself as a sent one from Jesus Christ. He says an apostle. That's his office, an apostle. That's his gift, an apostle. Why didn't Peter here say, Peter, the Pope? Because Jesus Christ made me the Pope. He didn't say that, obviously. Second Peter, chapter 2. Second Peter, chapter 2. The second epistle, obviously. Hear what the apostle Peter says. He adds, adds another description of himself in addition to his office. He adds this descript, a description, 2 Peter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm a slave. It's the word bondservant, slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. He had another opportunity to, to say, I, I, Christ, you know, I'm the one that he's building his church on. 1 Peter 5. You need to go back, if you will. And we have another statement from the apostle Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Let me just stop here and say elders. Elders, pastors, overseers, shepherds, all those terms refer to the same individual or individuals. A pastor is an elder, a pastor is an overseer, a pastor is a shepherd. And sometimes you'll read where the Bible says, or call them, people even call themselves a bishop. Well, that just can't comes from the King James. It just simply means the same thing, overseer. In the Greek, those terms are interchangeable. So Peter says, I exhort the elders or pastors, overseer among you as your, get this, fellow elder. He didn't say, now I'm coming at you elders as your pope. No, your fellow elder. That's who he was. He didn't have a false view of himself. He's writing scripture here, and he recognizes that he is a fellow pastor, like those unnamed pastors there to whom he wrote. So far, we've seen three things. It refutes this notion that the papacy is a scriptural office and that Peter was the first pope. Let's go further. There's some more. Let me give it to you. Just listen to these. Number four, in Acts chapter 8, verse 14, the apostles in Jerusalem dispatched Peter and John to go to Samaria. After reports came to Jerusalem about the Samaritans responding in faith to the gospel. Acts 
I find that really fascinating. The elders, uh, the, the apostles rather, said, Peter and John, y'all need to go. It wasn't Peter acting as Pope saying, I'm going to designate you go and you go. No, they say, you go, Peter, along with John. Fifth, in the first church council, in Acts chapter 15, it was not Peter, but James who presided. Why not uh, the Pope Peter? If he were the Pope, the head of the church, it would seem at the first church council, the Pope should be presiding. He didn't. In fact, in Acts chapter uh, 11, uh, he had to give an account for his ministry to the Gentiles because he said, Peter, what are you doing? Going in the Gentile's house and preaching the gospel to a Gentile, he had to give an account. You, you don't talk that way to the Pope. They did. Sixth. Peter, remember, is Antioch, and when they came from James, Peter would withdraw from the Gentiles, and he would meet with them as he had done previously because he was afraid of the Judaizers, and Paul com confronted him face to face and told him, that's wrong, that's hypocritical. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Hmm. Scripture gives a, shows us that these words here in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 16 cannot really refer at all to Peter as a pope in the A portion here I hope you're back there in Matthew chapter 16 what does Jesus mean then by the words you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church first of all you need to understand that it's, it's a pun when Jesus says, you are Peter and upon this rock, it's a pun. It's a word play. The words Peter and rock. The English text cannot show the play on words. Peter, Petros, is the word in Greek. The feminine form is Petra. Peter or Petros is a small stone. Rock or Petra is a different form of the same basic Greek word. And it means a rocky mountain or a peak. Some teach that Jesus was comparing Peter to the great mountainous rock, to a great mountainous rock or on which he would build his church. Rock is taken to be Peter's confession, verses um, 16 and 17. And that's a, a good, good interpretation, and I, I think that's worth consideration. However, there's a problem to zero in and, and, and say that it is Peter, even with that previous interpretation that I just gave you. Because Scripture elsewhere uh, shows us something else, and we have to include it. Scripture interprets Scripture, and so we have to say, is it really Peter? Or does it include everybody else? I'm glad you asked. Now, I need your indulgence. Go with me uh, at least one more time, probably two or three, I don't know. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. When the Apostle Paul is writing about the church, he makes a significant statement in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. 
I suppose you found it. Having been built on the foundation of, now what do the words say? The apostles. The apostles. That's plural, got that? And prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, let's think about this uh, so we can understand it. So Peter stands out in Matthew 16, but then here in the Word of God, which helps us to understand all of this involves, it says apostles, plural, and prophets, plural. Well, where does Peter stand in this? Peter was the representative of the twelve. When Jesus was speaking to him, he was not just speaking to Peter, but he's speaking to all of them, all of the apostles. Because Peter was the leader. If you know anything at all about Scripture, the Gospels, you know that Peter was always listed first in the listing of the disciples, right? When the list of disciples is given, guess who is number one? Peter. He was the leader of the disciples. Anytime anything needed to be asked, guess who's opening his mouth? Peter, Jesus, Lord, what about Lord? He was always doing it. He was the leader. And what the Lord God did, even with Jesus' question, as we saw, who is Jesus Christ last week, Peter's mouth was available. And God the Father revealed through Peter, in verse 16 of Matthew 16, who Jesus Christ is. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter, Petros, as an individual in Petra, being used of him as the representative, as the, you know, the rock of the larger group. That's what is being taught. With that being said, the church is not built on the apostles themselves, much less an individual like Peter or his successors. Think about this. They're not literally built on them, not on Peter and not the papal successors that the church at Rome claims. Frankly, I would be very nervous if the church were built on the successors to Peter, if that were true, and then we got somebody like Francis, uh, Pope Francis. Y'all have heard of him? <clears throat> Rather, the church is upon the apostles as Christ uniquely gifted and appointed teachers of the gospel. That's what it is. The foundation of the church is the revelation of God given through the apostles and prophets. Keep that in mind. Peter had the truth. The other disciples, the apostles, had the truth. The revelation from God about who Jesus Christ is. They taught it. When the church was born uh, on the day of Pentecost, all those who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, 3,000, they sat under the apostles and listened to the apostles' doctrine, Acts chapter 2, verse 41. They learned from them what Jesus had taught them and what the Spirit of God was teaching them about the faith. So, it's through the apostles and prophets comes given a revelation of who Jesus is and all the truth. 
So the Lord builds the church on the truth of himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation upon which he builds his church. You know, notice something. If you're back there in verse 18, we've dealt with that issue. So the idea of papacy is a false one, some biblical one. Peter was not the first pope. In fact, he wasn't a pope at all. It's nonsense. Jesus says, I will build my church. Church must be defined. At this junction in redemptive history, the word did not carry a technical meaning as it did and continues to after Pentecost. At this juncture in redemptive history, when Jesus was talking to his men, he wasn't talking about the church as a distinct body of Christ because the church hadn't been born yet. In fact, those guys wouldn't even know what that was. Even though this is the first mention of church in the Bible, in the Gospels, he's not talking about the church as it is now. It's a general term. The term church, ecclesia, means the called out ones. Ecclesia can and is translated in Scripture as assembly. Acts chapter 7, 58, assembly. And, and, and also in Acts later, I can't recall exactly where, there was an assembly, ecclesia, people ready to riot. So the term means assembly. Uh, uh, that's the idea. They can be called out to come do something. But, in terms of Jesus' community, his called out ones, he is talking uniquely about a group of people. The called out ones. Those whom the Lord sovereignly, efficaciously calls to salvation, calls from darkness to light. And it's important to know that you can't be a part of the church unless God calls you to salvation. I've heard in my lifetime, many, many, many times, people say to others or about others, you need to get in somebody's church. Y'all have heard that, haven't you? And every time I hear it, I think that's just ludicrous. Because what they seem to be saying is you need to go join some physical, visible organization. Did you not know you can belong to a visible organization called a church and go straight to hell? Joining a church does not save you. You can be part of the Methodist church, the Presbyterian church, and a great church, ELBC, but if you don't know Christ, you're going to go to hell. You have to be called out of darkness. Like you have to be called from your sin, and that's a sovereign prerogative of Almighty God. Called from among lost humanity by Jesus to be a follower of his. That's what it means to be a part of the church, to be called out. You have to be born again. You possess new life. You're united to Christ. That's what happens when you're really a part of the church, the ecclesia. Called out. Now notice something else. Jesus has that. Possessive pronoun, my. My. 
He is the owner of the church. I'm not. You're not. He owns the church. It's his church. Keep that in mind. You say, how did it become his? Simple. He purchased it with his, with his own blood. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, and Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. He purchased us. He bought our pardon. He paid for our sins. He redeemed us. And it's his church, and there's a, a, another matter that we must consider. He is authoritative over his church. His word is the means whereby he shepherds his church. That's why we spend time teaching the word of God, because when we teach the word of God, Jesus is shepherding his church by his truth. That's why we don't have all this other stuff. We have the word of God. It has to be central to what we do, because that's how Jesus shepherds his church. Right? We need to hear his word. And whatever he says the church is to be about, we're to do that. We don't pick up ideas from the world to determine what we do in the church because the world doesn't, it's not the determinative for what we do. Christ is. People a lot of times say, church, I do this, church, I do that. And my first thought is, what does Jesus say? It's his church. And since it's his church, I want to know, what does he say? And if he doesn't give us authority to do that, I ain't doing it. I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones pastor in England died in 81, 1981. He had been called to, to pastor a church that was not doing well. And Dr. Jones, he was a medical doctor by profession, the Lord called him and he uh, followed the Lord and he went to the church and instead of having a pulpit in the center of the church and what they had, a stage so they could perform plays. And they did all kind of other things like that. Lloyd-Jones, with audacity, he goes there and removes all of that. Places a pulpit right smack dab in the center of the church and start expositing the scripture. Expositing the scripture. God began to bless it. Bless it because he gave Christ his rightful place in the church through the word of God, right? Whenever we can uh, congregate, whenever we have Bible study, whatever, we come with the word of God. That, that At that point, we give Christ his rightful place in his church, right? It's his church. We do what he says. Notice, and the gates of Hades will not prevail over it. I've talked about the promise to build the church. Now here's this reality, the invulnerability of the church. The invulnerability of the church. I just read the text. The gates of Hades has been thought of and preached as referring to the forces of hell who assault the church. People say, oh, the gates of hell are not going to stand against the church. Man, they can be rhetorical in their power and they can say all of that stuff and as if that's what this means. It's, it's Satan and the demons aren't going to prevail over the church, as one translation puts it, overpowered. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. The words gates of Hades have an Old Testament background and refer to the gates of death. The place of the dead, Sheol. Death, Jesus saying, has no power over the redeemed. Gates, keep in, can't hold us. 
Death cannot overpower the redeemed. The church's Lord has conquered sin and death. There is the church will triumph. Jesus said this, because I live, you shall live also. John 14, 19, then I take him at his word. He's defeated what could have kept me from being alive eternally, sin and death. He's defeated that, therefore he says, I will live because he lives his resurrection. For Christians, death shouldn't cause us to fear, right? I um, heard an interview about an uh, um, interview of the late Henry Kissinger. And he was asked the question, do you believe in an afterlife? Kissinger, this brilliant man, graduated at Harvard, summa cum laude. Former Secretary said, you know all that. He didn't answer right away. I'm thinking, no, Henry, you don't want to deal with that. And he said, well, we, we're a small place in the world, and maybe possibly he had no definitive answer. We do. There is life after death. We will live because Jesus lives. Because he conquered death. And if, if they ever ask you, Ted Koppel did an interview, if Ted Koppel comes and asks you, is there life after death? Say yes. And let me tell you why, Ted. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. The church is invulnerable to death. Jesus is building it, and it's invulnerable. Next. Verse 19, the heading is the authority of the church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, again, I've got to tell you the stuff I've heard. This verse has been mutilated by those who don't really know what they're talking about, and they say, oh, oh, that's how you, this text is you bind the devil. Uh, that's not what this is talking about. Jesus told my church, you're not talking about the devil. You see, Scripture interprets Scripture. You must compare Scripture with Scripture. You need to understand what Jesus is talking about when he uses terminology like this to come to the right interpretation. Now, I think I told you I was going to have you turn to some more uh, chapters. You all okay with that? Good. <laughs> John chapter 20. John chapter 20. The day of the resurrection. Jesus raised from the dead and he's with his disciples. And an interesting event transpires, interesting words and what Jesus does here. John chapter 20. Let's begin at verse 22. My real focus is 23, but I want to set this up with the preceding verse. It says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them, Jesus to the disciples, and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit at that point, because remember, the Holy Spirit came to live in them on the day of Pentecost. But what Jesus was doing is a ceremonial thing. It's symbolic. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit. 
and he, by breathing on them, and they understood breath because the word in the Old Testament uh, for spirit it can be the wind or breath or spirit. You know those three words. And so they would comprehend the idea, receive the Holy Spirit when he breathed the symbol on them, which is a symbol. And notice, here's my point, connecting with what we just read in our main text. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. He's talking about sin being retained and sin being forgiven. Jesus is talking about those who are bound in sin and those who are loosed from sin. When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they truly trust him. We have the authority delegated from Christ to say, you've been loose from your sin. But if someone says, I reject Christ, I don't want Christ, we have been given the delegated authority by Christ to tell them your sins remain. How do we know that? Because Scripture tells us if a person says no to Christ, they're still bound in their sin. If they say yes to Christ, They've been loose. They've been forgiven. And Jesus delegated that authority to the apostles and authority, that authority to the church. But there's one more. Matthew 18. And we'll look at this more closely when we get there. But I want you to see the similarity in language that is used. Matthew 18. And verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Haven't we read that language somewhere else? That helps us understand what Jesus means over here in our text this morning, does it not? This is church discipline. And what Jesus is saying here in verse 18, a person sins and they refuse to listen. You go one, two, three, and you tell the church they refuse. Guess what? If they don't repent, whatever church says you retain your sin or bind has been bound on earth or you bind them, it shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you lose, if they repent, they turn from their sin, a brother in the church. When there's church discipline, guess what? They it shall have been loosed in heaven. And the church has the authority to tell a person that, okay, you won't repent, we're going to treat you to tax and you're still bound by your sin. Whether that brother or sister in the church says, you know what, yes, you're right, I have sinned, um, I repent of my sin, I'm confessing that, and we can tell them, you've been loose, you've been forgiven your sin. That's church, people. That's how church is to function. Jesus' word. One more thing. You'll notice the language. Shall have been bound in heaven. Verse 19. And shall have been loosed in heaven. Shall have been. In the original perfect tense, verbs are participles. What this means is that whenever we say your sins have been, notice the text, 
bound, still bound on you, shall have been bound in heaven. We're just agreeing with heaven. Heaven's already said, it is so. God has already said, you're still in your sin. And we tell them when there's repentance, ah, your sins have been forgiven. Heaven says, we've already done that. God says, I've already done that. I've already acted. So we're just acting in conformity with what God does. When we either either tell a person they're bound in their sin or we let them know that their sins have been forgiven. That authority, the keys, that word keys, symbol of authority. Kingdom of heaven, the realm of salvation. So here we are. The authority of the church. Verse 20. The spiritual reality of the church. Now think about this. Jesus has told, uh, they, it's been revealed to them, the Father has, that Jesus, in verse 16, is the Christ. Remember that? The Messiah. Ha-Mashiach. Messiah. Come to verse 20. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Messiah. You say, what? Don't you want everybody to know that? Yes, he does. But you need to understand something. You need to understand the context. You need to understand, as we've said as we worked our way through Matthew, that the Jews had a false notion in their thinking about Messiah. They didn't want a savior, a deliverer from their sins. They wanted a deliverer from Rome. They wanted a political military deliverer. And so if you go tell them he is the Messiah, the son of the living God who's going to deliver from their sin and all that, they say, well, watch. We ain't interested in that. So they weren't. In fact, Jesus had to go die. And when we get back to this passage, this chapter, we'll see that. Jews didn't have in their mind that Messiah would die. It was a foreign concept to them, even the disciples. So it's not that Jesus didn't want them to know that he is Messiah. It's that they would not receive him as Messiah. And to tell them he is the Christ or the Messiah would have been casting pearls before swine. Jesus said, don't do it. But now, we're at liberty to tell everybody, Jesus is the Messiah. He's come, he died, he was raised, he's Messiah. We can tell people. And Jesus is building his church. I'm going to tell you something. I open to say the only entity that will exist forever is the church. If you spend your life and your energies and your resources in involvement with that which Jesus is building, you've made the best investment for time and eternity. Because it will last. Everything else you do, 
that's centered here is going to be left here. I'm not saying being a sluggard. If you're a college, go and finish college, get your degree, get your master's, get your doctorate, do all of that because uh, you can be used by the Lord in all of those areas. Do it, but understand, don't forsake God's church because the rest of this is going to be swept away. The church is not. Because Jesus is building it. If you have a good job, keep it and do it. Do well at whatever you do. Be disciplined, accomplish things. That's nothing wrong with that. That's not a contradiction. But don't forget to be involved in that which will last forever, right? When it's all said and done, all that's ultimately going to count is what did you do for him? What did you do for him as he built his church? And that's what we all want to do. And we want to hear from him when it's all said and done. Well done. You good and faithful slave. So keep on doing what he wants for his glory, for your eternal joy. One day, one day, Jesus is going to come. He's going to descend from heaven with a shout. The voice of an archangel. And he's going to call us up to meet him. And we're going to go be at home with him. Or we're going to die. And, go. and how do we want to meet him? Whether by death or rapture. It says this. I served you, Lord. All the allotted days of my life from my conversion to this point I've met you let's bow to pray our Father and our God we thank you for your word thank you for your truth um, delivers us from lies and deception thank you for your truth that motivates us to live the things that are eternal thank you for uh, all that you've granted to us your people we're undeserving but you're gracious and kind and good and we thank you for your grace. Help us as your people to serve you even more faithfully. And help us to have a mindset that which lasts forever. The church. Your church. We pray all of these things now in the glorious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.